Welcome to the preaching podcast of Poplar Springs Baptist Church in Hiram, Georgia, and the preaching ministry of our senior pastor, Wayne Meadows. It is our desire that the message you hear today would call you to a closer walk with Jesus Christ, and that your life would give glory to God as you apply the biblical truths proclaimed. For more information about the ministry of Poplar Springs Baptist Church, check us out on the web, www.psbchurch.net. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the preaching of God's Word. If you have your Bibles this morning, let's open them to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, and we will give our attention today to verses 14 through 20. Mark chapter 1, 14 through 20. While you're finding your place in the Gospel of Mark, let me encourage you, if you haven't done so today, grab a bulletin before you leave, because in the bulletin today you'll find a calendar uh, for our upcoming Sunday night life events in February. Uh, we seek to use Sunday nights in February to be intentional in developing and fostering gospel-centered relationships. And if I'm not mistaken, that first Sunday night in February, we're asking you to take some time uh, Sunday evenings in your home in family worship together. Uh, I think we all understand the importance of gathering here on the Lord's Day Uh, in worship as a family of faith, Uh, but it's also important that we worship in our homes, that we as parents lead our children in worship, that they understand and realize that uh, what we believe about God and the worship that we give to God is not something that's compartmentalized or isolated to just a Sunday morning experience, but it shapes every aspect of our life. And so that kicks off Sunday Night Life starting next Sunday night. And uh, I I know many of you maybe have never engaged in family worship. Maybe it's something you've never thought about. And so this week, we'll make some resources available to you, give you some helps. And then I hope that you'll be prepared next Sunday evening to to come together as a family to enjoy that time. And then looking past that, uh, you'll begin to think and pray and plan uh, for opportunities together with others in fellowship, but also uh, those that you may know that you can reach out to who are unchurched, who don't know Christ and foster a relationship with them that is centered around the gospel, aimed at sharing the good news of Jesus with them and opportunities that you can do that. And of course, uh, Sunday Night Life concludes here at the church that last Sunday in February, that last Sunday evening with our annual uh, men's chili cook-off event, uh, open to the entire church, hosted by our men's ministry here. It's always a fun evening, so make plans to be here for that. And that's a great opportunity to invite those friends that you have. Uh, who aren't connected with a church or uh, maybe don't even know Christ, just to come upon our campus to enjoy a good evening of fun, uh, eat some hopefully good food, right? It's a chili cook-off. You never know what you're going to get, but it's usually pretty good. And uh, come out and just enjoy a good evening. So be in prayer about that. Make plans for that. And uh, let's make the most of our Sunday evenings coming up in February. All right, this morning, we're back in the Gospel of Mark, beginning our new study through this Gospel And today we come to another gospel beginning. Last week we looked at the first 13 verses, Mark's introductory comments, and we looked at the focus he gives to Jesus' identity as the Son of God and the beginning of the gospel. Well, these verses today, verses 14 through 20, bring us to another beginning. This time it's the beginning of Jesus' public gospel ministry. And so today in Mark 1 verses 14 through 20, we're looking at Jesus' gospel ministry. So I'm going to read these verses, 
You follow along in your copy of God's Word and hear the Word of the Lord today. Mark 1, verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Let's pray once more. Our Heavenly Father, I do ask now that you would show us Christ. As we have opened before us your inspired and inerrant holy word, let us see your glory. And as we gaze upon the glory of Christ today, may our lives be transformed. Father, I confess today my inability and inadequacies to proclaim your holy word. So I ask that you would let your spirit be my helper today, that your word may go out in demonstration and power, and Father, that you may use it to conform us to the image of Christ, that eternal work may be done today. And Father, that you would receive all the honor and glory. Father, bless now the reading and the preaching of your word, for I ask it in Jesus' name, amen. In our verses today, we see Mark, if you will, opening the curtain upon Jesus. We have in Mark 1, verses 14 through 20, Jesus going public with his gospel ministry. And as Mark begins to highlight this beginning of Jesus' gospel ministry, he starts with something that is a little bit unique for him. He gives us a time and a location. Mark doesn't do this often in his gospel, so when he does, it's something that we should pause and consider. He tells us that Jesus' gospel ministry began publicly, first of all, after John was arrested and when Jesus came into Galilee. A time and a location. He marks the beginning of Jesus' gospel ministry. He tells us it began for Jesus after John had been arrested. That John is the John that we encountered last Sunday at the beginning of the chapter, John the Baptist. His ministry was located there in Judea in the wilderness. He was that kind of crazy, different guy that had this unique wardrobe and strange diet uh, that preached a very uh, a powerful message calling people to repentance and baptism. And we learned last week as well that, that Jesus was in fact baptized by John. And at that occasion, the Father gave his affirmation and John exalted him as the one that people should look to. We're told here that that John has been arrested. He was arrested by Herod. And he was arrested by Herod because of the message that he was preaching. Now, Herod was very intrigued by John. He was very interested in John's ministry. He kind of held John in this unique regard. 
But at the same time, he was troubled by John as well. Particularly that John kept calling Herod out for taking his brother's wife. Now John lets us in on this uh, cause of arrest later in his gospel. He comes to it in Mark chapter 6 where he tells us John had been preaching against those actions. And while it, it certainly disturbed Herod, it more upset his wife Herodias. And she was the one who ultimately would have the, the head of John the Baptist severed from his body, his life taken from him. It was upon this arrest of John, his removal from the wilderness and placement into prison, that Jesus then kind of steps up into uh, to the full uh, limelight. He, he steps into the center of the stage, if you will. All eyes are now upon him. John's ministry of preparing the way, John's ministry of being a forerunner, John's ministry of heralding the coming king has been fulfilled. Now the king is here. John had been arrested and Jesus came into Galilee. Think with me for just a moment about the geography of Israel. We need to do this here at the beginning of our study of Mark because as we go through the gospel, there'll be other passages where geographical settings are given, and it's helpful to kind of have a picture in your mind of where things are taking place and events transpiring. So picture in your mind right now, if you will, the modern state of Israel. That long uh, piece of land there in the, the Middle East, uh, on its western border is the Mediterranean Sea, its eastern border is the Jordan River. Now divide that sliver of land into thirds. You've got an upper third, a middle third, and a lower third. That lower third of Israel was known as Judea. And that was the area where John the Baptist was ministering. That's where he was out in the wilderness, in that lower third region. It's where Jerusalem was located. It's where Bethlehem could be found. So a lot of important things going on in the region of Judea. And it's where really all the devout Jews lived and where everything that was Jewish seemed to take place. So a very proud place for the people of Israel, the region of Judea. And then in that middle third... You had the region of Samaria. Now, we're familiar with Samaria in the Gospels because we know that the Jewish people disdained that region. They disdained the people who lived there. They didn't see them as true Jews. In fact, they considered them uh, in a very derogatory way to be half-breeds. And for that reason, any true Jew, any devout Jew, would do all that they could to avoid going into Samaria. In fact, they would go way out of their way to avoid contact with them, but not Jesus. We know in the Gospels, especially in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 4, that Jesus told his disciples he must needs go through Samaria. And as he went through Samaria, he encountered that woman at the well and changed her life forever. So that's Samaria. And then above Samaria and the upper third region, you have the region of Galilee. This was where the hometown of Jesus was located. This was where Nazareth was. He was Jesus of Nazareth. His family came from this upper region. And it was there that Jesus went to, what John had been arrested, and it was there that the curtain was lifted and his public ministry began. And as Mark highlights this public beginning of Jesus' gospel ministry, there's two very important aspects that he points us to in the text. First of all, I want you to see in verses 14 and 15 that in Jesus' gospel ministry, 
he preached a gospel message. We see in verses 14 and 15, Jesus' gospel message. After John was arrested and Jesus made his way back into Galilee, he began proclaiming the gospel of God. He was preaching, saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus' gospel ministry centered around his gospel message. A couple of thoughts about this gospel message that I would point out to you here in these two verses. First of all, notice the significance of his message. The significance of his message. Mark tells us that he came proclaiming. When Jesus stepped into Galilee and began publicly the ministry that he had been given and called to, it was a ministry of proclaiming the gospel of God. It was a ministry of proclamation, a ministry of preaching. This is where he begins, and this is what he will continue to do throughout his earthly ministry. Now, we all know and we all understand, right, that Jesus will certainly do other things. I mean, he's going to do some amazing things. In fact, we're going to get to those next Sunday. But Jesus, his main emphasis is on preaching the gospel. Yes, he will heal the sick. Yes, he will raise the dead. Yes, he will meet needs. He will put food in stomachs. Uh, He will open blinded eyes. He will heal crippled legs. He will do all those amazing and miraculous things. But Mark wants us to understand that the ministry of Jesus centered around the gospel message that he proclaimed. This is the most important aspect of all that he does. And we can't miss this today. If this is the most important thing that Jesus does, and this begins and captures and is the capstone and the cornerstone of his ministry, preaching the gospel, the significance of this message, it must also be our focal point in ministry too. Preaching, teaching, and sharing the gospel message. Now that's not saying that we should not give attention to practical needs, to physical needs, that we shouldn't seek as well to put food into the bellies of those who are hungry or give a drink of water to those who are thirsty or put clothes on the back of those who have nothing to wear. No, all of those things are important and all of those things should have our consideration. But the ultimate thing, the thing that we must always be about doing and we must never forget to do is preach the gospel because the gospel is the only message that saves. The gospel is the only message that can redeem. The gospel is the only message that can bring life out of death. This was the emphasis on Jesus' ministry. It should be ours as well. As we go through the New Testament, we see others who practice this same approach of preaching the gospel. Peter stood on the day of Pentecost, and what did he do? He preached the gospel Paul's ministry was marked by what? The preaching of the gospel. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17, Paul says to the believers in the church at Corinth, he, he gives the mission to which he had been appointed to. He says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. That was where his focus, that was where his emphasis was placed on the proclamation of the good news. When Paul writes the last recorded chapter we have of him in Scripture, those final words that he would send to his son in the faith, Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, you know what he tells him to do? 
You know where he places the emphasis on Timothy's ministry there in the church? He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. And listen to this. And by his appearing and his kingdom. Does that sound familiar? His appearing and his kingdom. It should, because we've heard Mark mentioned today in the message that Jesus proclaimed. He is preaching a message of appearing and kingdom, time fulfilled, kingdom is at hand. So what do we do based upon that? Mark, uh, Mark says it, Jesus does it, Paul writes to Timothy and says, Timothy, you do it. What is it? Preach the word. Preach the word. Now there are countless churches today in our culture that are doing a lot of things, but many of them aren't preaching the word. It's not that those things aren't bad things or important things, but I want you to know they're not the most important thing. The most important thing is preaching the word, and we must always be committed to sharing the good news of Jesus Christ above all else. It was the model of Jesus as he began his gospel ministry, the significance of his message. But then I want you to see the source of his message as well. Mark tells us that Jesus came proclaiming the gospel of God. The gospel of God. Now again, this sounds familiar to us, right? We've heard this phrase already. It came to us in the very beginning of Mark's gospel, although slightly different. Mark, in the prelude of his gospel, says this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news of of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But now we have Jesus beginning his public ministry, a ministry of preaching the word. And what is he preaching? The gospel of God. So what's going on here? Is it the gospel of Jesus Christ or is it the gospel of God? Yes. Yes, it is the gospel of Jesus. And yes, it is the gospel of God. The Bible and New Testament uses those because they are one and the same. Because Jesus is God in the flesh. And it was God who sent Jesus into this world. So the good news is both the good news of Jesus and the good news of God. But what I want you to see is that the source of this gospel comes from God. Jesus here is said by Mark to proclaim the gospel of God. He did not preach the gospel about God, but rather the gospel of God. Now, I know that might seem small and insignificant, but it's entirely important. It's not that he is just telling us things about God, and it's not that Mark is just telling us things about Jesus, but rather he is telling us, and Jesus is preaching about the things that come from God and things that come from Jesus. In that statement, the gospel of God and the gospel of Jesus They're given to us in the possessive form, in the genitive form of the Greek language, where it shows us that the gospel belongs to God. The gospel belongs to Jesus. God has authority and ownership over the gospel. So here's what it means. If we remove Jesus, if we remove God, we have no good news. We have no gospel. It is God's gospel. And it is our responsibility to declare it as he has given it to us. He has authority and ownership of the gospel. This is why Paul would write later in the New Testament to the believers in the churches of Galatia. 
And he was astonished, he said, that seemingly they had moved on from the grace of Christ and were turning, he says, to a different gospel. But then he adds, it's not that there is another one. He says, but rather there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel. Paul then says, but even if we are an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say to you again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. He concludes, for I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. Paul said, I didn't come and preach to you the good news regarding man, nor did I come to preach to you the good news that came from man. Paul says, I came and preached to you the gospel of God that comes from God, that finds its source, its origination, and is derived from God himself. What this tells us is that we can't alter the gospel. We can't add to the gospel. We can't take away from the gospel. It is the gospel of God. And this was the message that Jesus proclaimed. He came preaching the good news of God. And then Mark gives us the sermon that he preached. He tells us in verse 15, saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus, based upon this message, was not Baptist because he only preached two points and he did not have a poem. Jesus was a two point preacher when he proclaimed the gospel of God. He simply preached, the times fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, certainly Jesus shared more than this. There were more words that would be added to this. He would expand upon it. He would seek to apply it. He would call for decisions from it. But in this verse, Mark gives us a synopsis that captures the heart of Jesus' message. And there's two points. Point number one. Jesus preached about a gospel reality. This is the first part of his saying. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus was drawing attention to this specific moment in the history of redemption and what God was now doing through him. The word time there that Mark uses is interesting in the Greek language because there are two words that speak of time in in the Greek grammar. One word is chronos, and chronos speaks of calendar time, the sequencing of things. It would speak of of seconds and minutes and hours and days and months and years, the unfolding of things. We get our word chronology from that. We're familiar with that, right? Calendar time. But that's not the word that Mark uses here. He's not simply Jesus marking time, and Mark is not marking time On this occasion that Jesus begins his public ministry, that's not what he's seeking to imply. The Greek word that Mark uses here is the word kairos. And it's a word that means monumental. Something great is occurring. It's a word that means not merely history, but something historic is unfolding. 
chronos or chronology captures the history of time. History is happening every single day. History is occurring right now. But not everything is historic, right? Just to kind of give you an example, if we go back to September the 10th, 2001, history occurred that day. Time passed, events took place, things unfolded. Chronos time was experienced. But we know on the very next day, September the 11th, 2001, that more than history occurred, right? Something historic took place there in our nation's capital, there in a field in Pennsylvania, and there in New York City as tragedy struck our nation. That's the difference in these two words. Something that's not merely history, but something that is historic. And that historic event is the fulfilling of things. Jesus says the time is fulfilled. That word fulfilled is another interesting word. It pictures a cup that is filled to the brim. All the way to the top. This afternoon when you go and you have your lunch and you pour your drink or your waiter or waitress fills your cup or you sit down at your table at home and you prepare the table and the drinks are poured to enjoy, unless a toddler is filling that cup, we all stop a good ways below the rim, right? Toddlers don't have that control yet. Let's put it all in. We leave some room because we know we've got to pick up that cup and set it on the table. We've got to pick it up and lift it to our mouth, and we don't want it sloshing out and spilling over the edge. That word fulfilled here pictures the cup filled to the brim and sloshing over the edge. It's a plethora, an overabundance filled to the full. Jesus is saying this is a historic moment. A monumental occasion where things are filled all the way to the brim. And what is that? The kingdom of God is at hand. God is near. Here's what Jesus is getting at. The kingdom of God is a thread that's woven all throughout Scripture. In the Old Testament, it's spoken of. It's longed for. It's looked for. It's desired. Uh, In the New Testament, it's spoken of as a coming eternal reality, which we will enjoy in heaven. It's also understood as the rule and reign of God over all things at all times. So the kingdom of God is also a present reality across this universe. But here, Jesus said the historic moment in which the cup has been filled past the full is seen in the gospel reality and that the king himself is now present among you. The kingdom of God is here. It is at hand. It is close. Why? Because the king has come. Because Jesus is here and his ministry has begun. He is the son of God as we saw last week. And he is now ministering among us, proclaiming the gospel of God. This is a monumental occasion. One biblical commentator said this is both thrilling and terrifying. And I think he's absolutely right. It is thrilling to think that the Son of God has come here upon earth, that God has come incarnate, God in the flesh, in Jesus Christ from Nazareth, who is now ministering in Galilee. But at the same time, it is terrifying because the King of glory is here. And he comes proclaiming a message. 
Out of that gospel reality, he calls us to a gospel response. Simply repent and believe in the gospel. In light of the King now being here, in light of the King of glory standing before you, what must we do? We must repent and believe in the gospel. Gospel preaching is marked by this gospel response of calling people to repentance. Calling them to belief and trust and faith in Jesus Christ alone. But what does it mean to repent? Repentance is not simply trying. It's not simply turning over a new leaf. It's not simply doing better. No, repentance is the idea of turning. Of turning away from ourselves. Of turning away from our sins. And turning to Christ alone. Of turning to the King. It's not merely the idea of us acknowledging that we are sinners. That in the presence of the king, we have sinned against him. It's not merely acknowledging that, but it's also the idea of abandoning our sin for him. It's not just that we feel our sin, but that we forsake our sin. Why? Because the king is here. The king has come. He's come on a mission to seek and to save, to give his life, to redeem. And we must repent of our sins. We must turn, abandon, surrender. It is a repudiation against all that we hold dear in this life, the idols that we have made. We repent of that. And hear me this morning. There is no salvation, nor is there gospel, nor is there gospel preaching unless a a call to repentance is made. So many in the church today, they simply want a call to believe. And hear me, let me be clear here. Belief and repentance go hand in hand. They're the, the different sides of the same coin. But in calling people to Christ, it's not merely a call to believe, it's a call to belief and repentance. And a call to repentance is a call to exercise faith. We must express both. This was the message that Jesus proclaimed. We call people to turn away from sin and self and in surrender and submission, place their lives before Jesus Christ and believe in Him, to trust in Him, to cling to Him in the gospel. That simply means we trust in Him as the only way to be made right before the King to be made acceptable before God. And that is the good news that in Jesus we are. That if we repent and believe, if we turn and we trust, Jesus receives us, God receives us. This is the gospel message of Jesus' gospel ministry, and this is the message that we must proclaim as well. And I would simply call you today, if you're here and have not trusted in Jesus, or not a follower of Jesus, to become his follower by repenting and believing. Not mere intellectual assent, not mere acknowledgement of his historic identity, but rather a turning from yourself, a repudiation of your sin, a surrender of your life to him as king and lord and sovereign, and trust solely in him to make you acceptable in the presence of a holy God. This is the gospel message of Jesus. This is the gospel that saves. But then secondly this morning, 
I want you to see Jesus' gospel mission. Preaching this message, Jesus goes on his mission to call to himself followers. We're given an example of that in verses 16 through 20 as Jesus encounters two sets of brothers. Simon and Andrew, or we know him as Peter and Andrew, and then James and John, the sons of Zebedee. These two sons of Zebedee, James and John, they get to me the coolest nickname in all of the Bible. Jesus calls them the sons of thunder. I just believe in all my heart today, somebody needs to start a wrestling tag team by that name, the sons of thunder. How awesome is that? The sons of thunder. Jesus encounters these men, these brothers, there along the Sea of Galilee. This was there in that upper region of Galilee. It was on the eastern border. It was a large sea uh, that was given predominantly to commercial fishing. There were many as 16 harbors along uh, the seashore there. There were hundreds of boats that would go out each day and catch a variety of fish that could only be found there in that sea, and then they would be distributed across the region. We can presume from other gospel accounts that Jesus had had some prior contact with both of these sets of brothers. Presumably while he was there in Judea in the baptism of John there that we read about earlier in the beginning of Mark chapter 1, that Jesus spent some time there and these brothers were there as well. So there was some sort of association that developed. But here, in the beginning of his public ministries, he preaches the gospel. He goes about gospel mission of calling people to follow him. And these two sets of brothers are at the beginning of that call. There along the Sea of Galilee at one of these harbors, Jesus encounters Simon and Andrew, and he says to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Then a little further down, some more boats, he sees James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they're mending nets, and he calls them in like fashion, and they leave their father in the boat with the hired servants, and they followed him. couple of things in Jesus' gospel mission here. What we see in the two sets of brothers is, first of all, them responding to Jesus' authority. They realize that in Jesus, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven has come near, that, that he possesses an authority. This is one of the things that we'll encounter in Jesus' ministry is he teaches. People look at him and they hear him and they go, man, what kind of authority does this man possess? We see them responding to that authority, to the message that Jesus has preached, because he simply says, follow me. He issues this command to follow him. And what do they do? They respond. They heed the call. They follow the command. They go after Jesus. This was an unusual call made by Jesus. It takes place in the form of a rabbi during this day, a teacher, a leader. The common practice were for those who wanted to, to follow a rabbi, they would, in essence, give application. Much as we apply to colleges and schools today, they would approach a rabbi and list their credentials and all the desires that they had in wanting to follow him, and then if accepted, they would follow him. They would sit under his teaching. They would kind of go with him as he traveled and as he taught. But here, Jesus flips that. He reverses that. Here, it is not people calling after him, but rather he is calling after people. He is issuing a divine call, a divine summons, a divine command. Follow after me. It's a representation of his authority. This is what Mark is highlighting here. There's other passages where he is calling these disciples in the Gospels. 
and other things are occurring, other events transpiring, but Mark here gives it in the succinct fashion to highlight that particular authority of Christ, of Jesus, to call people in repentance and faith to believe in him and follow after him. We see his authority, but we also see in his gospel mission the priority that is given. Having heard this call, these two sets of brothers give Jesus ultimate priority in their lives. When we read this account, and we see its setting, we think, how cute. How awesome is this? This is the beginning of a Hallmark movie, except we need a single girl and a dog and a Christmas tree, but everything else is here. This is a postcard scene. We're on the shores of the Sea of Galilee and there's boats and harbors and people are working and frolicking and here comes this man from Galilee preaching. Follow me. Come, be my friend. And we think, how cute and peaceful is this? Blow that image out of your mind. It's not like that at all. That's not happening in any sense of the word. This is not cute. This is not peaceful. This is a great disruption in the life of these brothers and their families. These men were not just podunk rednecks on the shores of Galilee. These were successful businessmen who, from all that we can discern, had a lucrative business. They were famed and they were fortuned and now Jesus comes upon the scene and issues a divine call. They recognize his authority and they give him ultimate priority to the point that immediately, Mark says, they leave everything else behind, their nets, their boats, their paydays, their families, and they follow him. This is Jesus' mission to call people to himself who will give him priority above all. It's not that family is unimportant. It's not that a, a business doesn't matter or making a livelihood doesn't matter. No, those things do have weight in our lives. But Jesus here is calling us to place him above all of that. And here these two sets of brothers, they display that priority. The kingdom of God is at hand. I'm repenting. I'm believing. I'm following his authority. I'm giving him priority. And I'm living now. In community, Jesus calls them to follow him. They leave what was comfortable for what was unknown and uncertain, but yet they go not alone. There's Simon and Andrew, there's James and John, there's Jesus there with them, and as we travel through the gospel, others will come, disciples. And then among those disciples, some will be set aside as apostles. Peter will say, look what we've left behind. And Jesus will tell him, those who have left behind family and everything else in this life to follow me, they receive a hundredfold. Jesus' mission is to call to himself a community of followers, a community of believers who have repented of their sins and give him priority in their lives under his divine authority this is his gospel mission this is why church matters this is why a family of faith matters this is why fellowship matters because that's jesus gospel mission 
to call us to himself and to call us together to live for him. This is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. A ministry where he preached and where he lived out his mission. It's a ministry that we'll look at in more detail as we continue through our study of the Gospel of Mark. But I wonder today, has his message impacted your life? Have you heard the Gospel that he has proclaimed? And I wonder today, are you with Jesus on Gospel mission? Are you serving under his authority? Have you given him priority? And are you living together in a faith community? This is his mission. Repent and believe was his message. How have you responded today? 